You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's long and thick like a ropey red snake. It's rarely been seen and is spoken of in legends. It's feared by many, and some even say it shoots lightning. Oh, get your mind out of the gutter. We're talking about the Mongolian death worm. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. Today, we're going to talk with one of the most experienced cryptozoologists working today about some of the expeditions he's been on in search of mystery animals around the world, including the Mongolian death worm. But first, I'd like to remind you about a little expedition of my own. We've retooled our plans for the first ever Monster Talk cruise to make it more affordable. Prices are now starting at $500, and we'll be traveling from October 6th to October 10th, 2014, you'll have the opportunity to join me and the most popular guest we've had on Monster Talk, Dr. Ken Fader, as we sail to fascinating places, enjoy fun and games, and talk about monsters, and even have a chance to see Atlantis. I hope you can join me on this amazing journey. Go to cruise.monstertalk.org. That's cruise.monstertalk.org. Or call 1-800-794-7447 to book today. The Mongolian death worm is one of those monsters I've wanted to talk about, but have been challenged because there's so little written about them. But our guest has spent more time looking for them than anyone I know. In this episode, Karen Stolzno joins me to interview Richard Freeman about this fascinating legendary animal and his experiences searching for cryptids. Monster Dog. So Richard Freeman is the zoological director for the Center for Fortean Zoology which is the CFZ, if you're in the UK. He has gone around the world. Or Australia, or any place where they don't know how to say Z. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He's gone around the world looking for mysterious creatures, including hairy hominids, giant snakes, supposedly extinct species such as the thylacine, and one of the oddest and most famous cryptids, the Mongolian death worm. Richard's also a frequent lecturer and television guest and the author of several books. So welcome to Monster Talk. Pleasure to be here. So, how did you get interested in cryptozoology? I can answer that in two words for you, Doctor Who. When I was a boy growing up in the 1970s, I was a fanatical fan of Doctor Who, the longest-running um, science fiction serial in the world. And during the early 70s, uh, the Doctor was played by a great actor called John Pertwee, who was always my favourite Doctor. And during his tenure, he was incarcerated on Earth by the Time Lords. So the creatures he met were always in your in your backyard. They were not on some far far off alien planet. So they were all the more compelling and frightening because they were in a familiar setting. So you had giant maggots crawling out of slag heaps in Wales. You had um, super evolved intelligent marine dinosaurs coming up out of the sea. You had um, alien intelligences that could animate plastic and turn anything plastic into a killer. And all these things were were in modern-day Britain, 
um, it made them all the more frightening. Um, it got me completely hooked on monsters. And I was always interested in animals as well. And when I, I left school, I was a zookeeper for a number of years. I became um, head of reptiles at a, a major UK zoo. But the thing that really got me interested in monsters in the first place was Doctor Who. And, of course, the Doctor um, also fought the Yeti, you know, the Yeti um, and the Loch Ness Monster. And this got me interested in allegedly real monsters at a very young age. And um, I, after my tenure at the zoo, uh, I was out looking for the Beast of Bodmin Moor which is one of the British big cats. And I happened across um, a little museum called the Potter's Museum of Curiosities at Jamaica Berrin, uh, in and Bodmin Moor in Cornwall in England. Uh, sadly, uh, the museum isn't there anymore, but it was a, a fantastic tableau of stuffed animals and, and strange collections of uh, odd heterogeneous objects. Like you would have the head of a man-eating crocodile preserved next to a model of a... a um, a church made entirely out of feathers next to a, a Maori axe, and then uh, two squirrels having a duel with, with swords, or some uh, guinea pigs playing cricket, all stuffed, of course. And I came across this little magazine that was on sale there called Animals and Men, which wasn't nearly as rude as it sounded. And it was a magazine about... <laughs> and it, it was a very, very good magazine. I was living in Yorkshire at the time, in the northeast of England. I was studying at Leeds University, and I, I got writing for them. I became the Yorkshire representative, and eventually I ended up coming down to be the zoological director of the, the Centre for 14 Zoology, which is the only full-time cryptozoological organisation in the world. And since then, I've been all over the world looking for strange creatures, and uh, I've never looked back. But that was more than two words. <laughs> but, you know, speaking of uh, Doctor Who, I do actually have the novelisation of Doctor Who and the Yeti. Yes, the Abominable Snowman. Right, one yeah. of my one of my listeners gave me that as a sort of surprise gift. It was very nice. And uh, the, the the sequel, which is called The Web of Fear, where the Yeti appear on the London Underground and the Great Intelligence manifests itself as an enormous ectoplasmic web that grows through the London Underground. That has, has been lost since the nineteen sixties, and it's just turned up. They found it in Nigeria, and it's just been released over here on DVD. Oh, really? I'd, I'd yeah. heard about them finding the lost episodes, but I didn't know it actually yeah. came out yet. So, Yeah. So, Richard, how is cryptozoology different from regular zoology? It shouldn't be, really. It's a branch of zoology like any other. And one of the things that I want to, to do is, is rescue cryptozoology from the lunatic fringe. We're not a bunch of madmen that believe in every insane story that comes along. Speak for uh, yourself. <laughs> where the cryptozoology has, has largely been ruined by creationists and credulous idiots and people who, who are just too willing to believe in, in anything bizarre without sufficient proof. I'm not on a holy crusade to make people believe in monsters. I'm doing this because I'm interested in it mainly through my own interest. My contention is that there are, there are large unknown animals still around. There are still creatures unknown to science, some of which uh, may have been involved with legends in the past. But uh, cryptozoology is so hogged by things like the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and yeah. and the stuff that is, is perhaps... Um, less likely to exist you know that's a it's been a recurring theme here on this show is is just trying to kind of cover the the spectrum and we've we've had on some people who speak very well of cryptozoology and we've also covered some of the nonsense that goes on and i don't think there's any way to keep it pure i mean i don't think there's a way to keep out people who are interested in monsters i, I think the best we can hope for at least what i'd like to see out of this show at least is that you can teach people how to think critically uh, and sort of filter out what is completely absurd and what's plausible. Mm. I mean, I've just said the things less likely to exist. Uh, the Loch Ness Monster, I think, is explicable through known phenomena. Uh, I've seen alleged film of the Loch Ness Monster, which is undoubtedly a grey seal. Uh, most of the photographs are fakes. Uh, because of the nature of the lock, because of how, uh, the shape of it, uh, boat weights can hit the side of the lock and then bounce back and be crossing the lock half an hour after the boat's passed. And they look like a, a row of humps. There may be some very big fish in Loch Ness. Uh, I investigated a, uh, 
a case in Lancashire in the, the northwest of England where there's a, there's a very small lake, only about five feet deep and about two acres, called Martin Mere, where there were reports of a creature the size of a car pulling down full-grown swans and devouring them. And I, I thought, this sounds highly unlikely. And we contacted um, the head warden there because it was a part of a, a, the Wildfowl Trust and swans from Siberia and Iceland overwinter there. And they were being attacked by something. And this guy said, yes, there is something, and I've seen it. So he went up to investigate. And he said he saw something about the size of a, a settee swimming around in this, what is tantamount to a muddy puddle. And uh, I was standing by the banks of this of, of this lake, Martin Mere, thinking there is no way a large predator can live in this lake. And then suddenly it came to the surface, eight feet away from where I was. And it was a huge Wells catfish, an immense catfish. Wow. Um, to think a fish of that size could live in a lake so small was mind-boggling. Now, if you're walking along the shores of Loch Ness, you have to remember Loch Ness is the most famous lake in the world. And it's famous for having a monster. Even if you don't believe in a monster, the monster's there at the back of your mind. So if you see something odd out on the lake, another lake, you might think, oh, what's that out there? Is it, is it mating ducks? Is it fish jumping? There, it's the monster. Whatever happens, it's the monster. Yeah. So if you saw a, a, big, uh, a big catfish or a huge eel in Loch Ness, it would be the monster. I think... That the cultural priming that you're talking about there is mm. becoming a bigger problem. The more popular things like Bigfoot become, then the more likely people are to misidentify bears and that sort of thing. But I have yeah. to say, I'm fairly convinced that there's something to the Asian Yeti. I'm, I'm, I'm 100% convinced there's something to the Orang Pendek, but I'll talk about that later. But with Bigfoot, um, I've always found it much, much harder to swallow. But there are things about Bigfoot that give me pause for thought. And one of them is the Patterson footage. Because I used to be a zookeeper and I worked mainly with reptiles, but the place, the zoo I was at, it's called Twycross Zoo um, in the Midlands in England, was famous for its collection of monkeys and apes. And I've worked with all the known apes very closely. And the thing in that footage has the presence of an ape. Now I've seen plenty of people in monkey suits floundering around pretending to be Bigfoot. That is the only sequence of footage where I get the feeling that what you're looking at is an ape and not a person. And you mentioned the Orang Pendek. What yeah. do you think are the most likely real cryptids? Uh, the, the two that jump out immediately that I'm as near as damn it to 100% sure are still out there are the Orang Pendek and the Tasmanian Wolf. We've actually had on people to talk about possibly resurrecting the Tasmanian wolf. So if it's not around, I, I hope we get to bring it back just mm -hmm. just for the cool factor, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, but we know this creature existed until the 1930s. And since 36, there have been 4,000 sightings of this animal. And some of these have been made by zoologists and park rangers. Now, I was over in Tasmania in November. I had no idea that Tasmania, which is about the size of Ireland, has a population of less than half a million. Most of those are in Launceston and Hobart. Once you get out of, of those places, the towns are very small. They're more like villages. The villages are virtually non-existent. And there is masses and masses of wilderness. In the north and the northeast of the island, there are, there are huge forests that stretch on and on and on and on. And down in the southwest of the island, it's virtually uninhabited. There's no roads in and out there. There's one mine. There's a port with a few fishermen and some copper miners. And they go in and out by boat or helicopter. And the rest of the southwest peninsula of, of Tasmania is utterly uninhabited. Now, you so, actually just did a, an expedition there, right? In yeah. So how did, tell, first of all, I, how does one go about going on an expedition for something like this? And can you tell us a little bit about your experiences on that? Yeah, well, I, I wrote an article on setting up a, a cryptozoological expeditions once. And the key to it is getting good guides. Well, in, in Australia, they speak the same language. But uh, in other parts of the world, the thing is to get a decent native guides who know what they're doing, who can find witnesses, who can set things up so you hit the ground running. That's the, that's the big key. Now we've got, I've got friends in Australia, um, 
uh, Mike Williams, Tony Healy and uh, Rebecca Lang, who did a lot of the groundwork for this. It was their initial idea and they, they invited me along very kindly. And uh, Tony, Tony Healy is, is probably Australia's uh, longest serving and most experienced cryptozoologist. And he was down there for a couple of weeks before I got down there. Now, we were only there for two weeks because it's all down to the folding green stuff. If I had the money, I would be spending months and months and months in these areas. And, and to give you an example, the snow leopard, which is an animal we're all very, very familiar with, when zoologists first went out to try and capture the snow leopard on film in the early 70s, it took them something like six or seven years before they found one of these things and filmed it. So you really need to spend a hell of a lot of time doing these things. And uh, we, we managed to uh, speak to a number of witnesses and we decided early on that we were going to keep the exact location we were looking at secret and keep the people's names secret. Not so much because of them, but because they asked us not to reveal where it was because they, they're worried about the animal. Uh, we talked to uh, a man who is a government licensed shooter and he goes out to keep the numbers of wallabies down. And he goes right out into the bush, and he's, a, he's a, a real bushman. And he had absolutely no axe to grind about this, and he, he told us that he'd seen the thylacine twice crossing the road in front of his vehicle. And he was very worried about, about it getting out exactly where it, it, these sightings were. So he made us promise not to, to tell anybody exactly where. We, we've got all the notes. We know where they were. It was good enough, but... but like most of the people we talked to, they were very worried about the creature. Another man, often they're from cars. Uh, uh, people see them at night when they're driving along. Another man saw one of these things run out in the road in front of him, and the car behind them stopped as well. So it was a multiple witness sighting. Um, again and again, we get we got these stories, and um, there was nothing sensational about them at all. And I, I was convinced, pretty convinced this thing was still around before I went, and I'm 100% convinced now. On uh, average, how much does a an expedition like this cost? Can you put a, a price on something like this? Well, they, they vary wildly depending on where you're going. I mean, the last time I was in Sumatra um, with, the, with the guides and uh, getting over there and the food and the equipment, it cost about £5,000. Uh, Mongolia was slightly more. Mongolia was about six thousand uh, pounds. The cheapest we ever did was um, the Gambia in West Africa, uh, and that only cost about three hundred pounds. But that was um, not. It was not a typical expedition. We we stopped in a hotel there, and that 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 uh, that does not, in my book, uh, constitute an expedition. When you've uh, <laughs> when you've fall, fallen off cliffs and the Russian mountains and uh, and being in sandstorms in Mongolia, staying in a hotel in Gambia does not count as an expedition. <laughs> but where does the money come from? We, we pay it ourselves. We, yeah. we finance it ourselves. Very rarely we get financed by television companies. Uh, when we went to look for the giant anaconda, um, we actually got financed by a games company, Capcom. Um, they had a new game out called Monster Hunter, and they, they wanted to do a tie-in with us, but they wanted us to, to, to go to Guyana in South America. Um, yeah, well, we'd got a contact in Guyana, but they wanted us to go uh, in uh, October, which was their dry season, which is not I- ideal to go, but it was to tie it in with the release of this this game. And unfortunately, they were having the worst drought in living memory. So the rivers were so low, you couldn't get out to these remote lakes where these colossal anacondas uh, were, were supposed to have been seen. And it was the toughest expedition I've ever done. I, usually I can handle the heat. It's cold that I can't stand. But we were on the grasslands of South America, not in the jungle. Uh, during a drought, uh, even the natives couldn't stand it. It was so hot. And it felt like you, your brain was being boiled inside of your head. And I could walk for about 100 yards and then I'd just collapse with heat stroke. It's unbelievable. So I'd like to go back to South America, but uh, during the rainy season. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about a lot of monsters on Monster Talk. There were just a lot of different folklore monsters and myth monsters. 
But we haven't talked about the Mongolian deathworm, and it, it's one that I've wanted to talk about for a while. It's one of our favorites, really. Yeah, but it is, it is. Yet at the same time, there's just not a lot of material on it. But I was hoping that you could help us learn a little bit yeah, more about this yes. creature. Yes, I was over in Mongolia in 2005. And of all of the places I've been, Mongolia is the, the weirdest and the most alien. The Gobi Desert is something utterly fantastical. Uh, you think of deserts as being sand, and, and part of it is sand, but other parts look like cat litter trays that stretch off into infinity and other parts uh, look like huge mirrors because it's all mica reflective mica other parts look like the surface of mars all red and twisted it was utterly amazing there's a place called the flaming cliffs because the cliffs look like fire the death worm itself when you hear stories of it over here it's a case of mongolian whispers because by the time it gets to the west it's a monster worthy of Doctor Who. It's supposed to be blood red, five feet long, it spits acid, it unleashes blasts of electricity like an electric eel. When you actually get over there and talk to the witnesses, you hear something completely different. We travelled for about a thousand miles through the Gobi, um, interviewing nomads, and they say it's about two feet long, about as thick as your arm. They call it alroy hui which means intestine worm, because they say it looks like a length of cow's intestine. I say it's shaped like a salami. It's hard to tell which end is the tail, which end is the head. It's scaly, reddy brown in colour. It doesn't generate blasts of electricity. They say throwing lightning. They say that's just folklore. It doesn't happen. They believe that it's poisonous and it can spit, and they have a deep dread of it. So one man we talked to, I'd seen the death worm when he was uh, tending his family's livestock as a boy. And he, he told his parents, and they packed up their gur, which is the circular tents they live in, packed up their gur and their livestock and moved out of the area. And we interviewed about 24 witnesses, and they ranged from a man in his 80s that had seen the death worm way back in the 1930s to a man in his 40s that had seen it just the year before. And we were getting the same description again and again and again of this salami-shaped creature. Most people just saw it lying in the desert and thought, right, I'm leaving that alone. One old ex-colonel on an old military base we met, he saw one whilst he was on patrol once, uh, early one morning, went back to get his camera. But when he got back, as they always do, it had gone. But uh, one, one man said he'd seen it grab and eat a mouse. And one woman said she'd seen it slithering out of a hole in, uh, in a saxel forest, in the roots of a saxel tree. Another man said that one of the ones he had seen had been killed by some Russian scientists who were collecting snakes. It had killed and taken away as a museum specimen. So there may well be, in some Russian museum, a preserved Mongolian death world. And no one knows what it is. It's probably locked away in a basement somewhere because 90% of um, natural history museum specimens are off show. You may remember Delcourt's giant gecko. Uh, it was uh, the world's biggest gecko. It's about a metre long, about three feet long, which is huge for a gecko. Completely unknown to science. And a stuffed specimen of one of these was on display in a museum in Paris for years and years and years until... A gecko expert happened by, just by chance, saw it, and his jaw hit the floor. And we still don't know if this creature is, is it's supposed to come from New Zealand. We still don't know if it's, it's alive or extinct. We only have one specimen. But I'm sure there are many cryptid specimens in um, museums around the world. Debbie Marta, uh, who's the head of the Indonesian Tiger Conservation Group, who's seen the Orang Pendek on four separate occasions, she says... She's sure that there's orang pendek material in Dutch museums because Sumatra was once a Dutch colony. There's been mislabeled orangutan. But the death worm, we came to the conclusion that it's, it's not a worm at all. It's some sort of burrowing reptile. It may well be a worm lizard or amphisbaena. These are neither worms nor lizards nor snakes, but they're related to snakes and lizards. But they're strange cryptic burrowing reptiles are sausage shaped and this sounds like a very large version of, of um, an amphisbaena or possibly a sand boa which are constricting snakes that live in arid 
um, climates, and they, they tend to be also very chunky, sausage-shaped creatures. And there's a type of um, sandboa in uh, East Africa, and in Somalia, they call it the apris, and they are terrified of it. They believe it's so poisonous that it doesn't even have to bite you to kill you. If you just touch it, if you so much as touch it, you'll die. Like they thought of the salamander in um, medieval Europe. In fact, it's completely harmless. It's a small constrictor. It feeds on mice. It doesn't even have venom. I think something similar has happened with the death worm. I'm convinced it's probably an amphisbaena, and this mythalization process has happened. Uh, it, it gets attributes grafted onto it that it doesn't actually have. But it doesn't mean that the animal doesn't exist. At one time, it was thought, na natives would tell you in Africa that um, gorillas would tear branches from trees and beat elephants to death with them or they'd come into to villages and carry off native women and rape them in fact the gorilla's erect penis is about the size of my little finger they're remarkably poorly endowed and they're and they're very placid animals unless provoked but they've had these myths grafted onto them but it doesn't mean that they there's no such thing as gorillas and I, I think it doesn't mean there's no such thing as the death worm i think it's a fairly innocuous animal and i said if i would have come across one I'd have captured it barehanded to prove that it's a harmless creature. But how venomous uh, the the creature is supposed to be kind of sounds a bit like some of the creatures we have in Australia, like the box jellyfish or the blue ringed octopus. Uh, they can be extremely dangerous and fatal uh, by merely touching them or stepping on them. The people who talked about the death worm, they said it spits venom, not acid, it spits venom. And if the venom touches things, they turn, it turns green and, and they die. But they never knew anyone who had been killed by it. Lots of people had seen it. No one had actually saw it spitting poison. No one had knew anybody that had been killed by it. They'd just heard friend of a friend stories of someone who knew someone who got killed by a death worm. So are there any other stories of similar creatures in other deserts, like in Australia yes. or in the United States? Well, there's, there's others in Asia. There's the, the shark orcoid, the, uh, the yellow worm, which uh, comes from, if, if memory serves me correctly, it's um, part of the former Soviet Union, um, Kazakhstan or somewhere. But it's supposed to be, whereas the death worm is supposed to be reddish in colour, this thing is supposed to be yellowish. And there, there are stories of a number of them being seen together, whereas death worms, they usually just seen alone so how do you actually go about trying to track one of these down when you're on the ground um, well you find out as much as you can about your target cryptid with the death worm with the death worm we found out that it's supposed to emerge after rainfall and it it's usually seen around water courses so we went to hung out a lot of oases and we went out into the deserts in the early morning after rainfall to look for the thing. We were going to try and dam a small stream in an oasis to make a localised flood to see if we could bring one to the surface through flooding its burrow. But um, the stream was very, very deep-sided, so it wasn't practical to do it. We did take out buckets as well uh, to make bucket traps where you dig a hole in the ground, you put the bucket in, and then between the buckets you put a row of these buckets, and between them you erect a small fence. So if something's crawling along at night, bumps into the fence, moves along the fence, it will fall into the bucket, and you've got your specimen. But all we caught was insects. But once again, we weren't out there anything like long enough. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. 
So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Did, did you have flashbacks to Dune? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone <laughs> trimmers. <laughs> When you when you say Mongolian death worm, everyone imagines something huge, hundreds of feet long, with great jaws. This thing's it's about two feet long. It's about the Do you think those kind of um, Western culture influences will affect the stories? Like like it would feed back and change the things people would see, or is this entirely just a localized? I mean, how how big of an area does the story of the death worm affect? I mean, is oh, it like extremely? It's southern Mongolia, the Gobi, and it'd be interesting to see if there are similar stories in the north of China, because the Gobi, of course, goes into the north of China, and we've got quite near to the to the Chinese border, so I'm almost certain that the animal lives there too. I'd like to know what it's called over there, and if they have the same sort of folklore about it. But it's a massive area, you know, the size of Europe, and once again, in Mongolia, there's a population of about a million in this gigantic country. And you can drive for days and days and not only see no other human beings, but no sign of any other human beings, no buildings, no agriculture, nothing, just emptiness. It's just like Kansas. <laughs> so I've heard, too, that the creature hibernates for most of the year. Well, the story was that it hibernates and it only comes out at the very hottest months, which is June and July. Well, once again, actually, when you talk to people, They've seen it from May through to September. So that's another piece of piece of folklore. Okay. Like a hurricane. Do you do you take protection for, I mean, if you were like hunting spitting cobras, I assume you would at least have a face shield with you. What do you do you <laughs> take anything yeah. like that? No, because I don't I didn't think I don't think it is a cobra. But if I, you're I wrong <laughs> if I'm wrong if I'm wrong, I will I will be the first cryptozoologist to be killed by a cryptid. What a way to go. But I've handled poisonous snakes before. I used to be a zookeeper. I've handled poisonous snakes. I got attacked by a spitting cobra in Africa. Oh. So what do you think is the best evidence for this creature so far? For the death worm? Yeah. Well, there's, there's no film of it. There's no photographs of it. But I'm not surprised. Because when you go over there, the people don't have cameras. And one of the, the things they prize above anything else is if you've got an instamatic camera, which is hard to get hold of these days, if you've got an instamatic camera, if you can take a photograph of them and give it to them, they love that. That's one of the greatest gifts you can give because they don't have things like that. But, but I think the, the, the best bet is to, is to look in museums, uh, look in the Russian and former Soviet museums for specimens of the death world. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's one of those creatures, it's not gigantic. So if you were over there, you saw one, you could probably catch it and bring it back to Ulaanbaatar, the capital, and prove that it exists. If you were in the right time at the right place, you could catch it. Uh, have you guys considered uh, Kickstarter? Well, that's something that um, uh, the, the, the guy that set up uh, the Centre for Fourteen Zoology is a chap called John Downs. And he's looking into that at the minute. He's looking into things like Kickstarter. For, for expeditions. It's, it's a new avenue we're, we're going up at the minute. I mean, we've we funded ourselves from, well, I, I write books, I do a bit of television, I lecture, I've lectured at the Natural History Museum, the Grant Museum of Zoology, and various venues up and down the country. But we do exist on a, on a fi- financial knife edge. Uh, just recently, my latest expedition to Sumatra was financed by Sciente, which is a French company that makes science documentaries. And uh, I was over there in June, July last year. Uh, we had a very successful expedition, found lots and lots of tracks and handprints. We heard the creature calling and we talked to, we amassed more witnesses than ever before and interviewed them all. And once again, they're all describing the same animal. Uh, I've been over to Sumatra now ooh, five times 
and uh, my colleague Dave Archer and one of our guides, the late Sahar Dimas, in 2009, they actually saw the creature in a tree from only 100 feet away. And it got down from the tree and walked away like a man. Now, as I've said before, I've worked with all the known species of apes and I've seen its handprints and its footprints and they're, the footprints are not like any other species of ape. The, the heel is much broader, much more human-like. It has a offset prehensile big toe, but it walks erect like a man. Now, some of the hair we got from that 2009 expedition was analysed by Lars Thomas, who is a biologist from the University of Copenhagen. And he says that the structure of it and the DNA, he says the DNA was fragmented because it had been in the forest a while, but it was similar to but distinct from Sumatran orangutan. Now, my theory about the orang pendek is that it's the third extant species of orangutan. There are two orangutan species in the world today. There's Pongo pygmaeus, the Bornean orangutan, that is more robust, and the more gracile Sumatran orangutan, Pongo abele, which is only found in the, the extreme north of Sumatra, whereas orang pendek is seen in the west of Sumatra. And in historic times, there have never been Sumatran orangutans in the west of Sumatra. Now, until recently, it was thought the Bornean and the Sumatran orangutan were subspecies. But now we know that they're individual species and that they speciated, they broke off from each other about 400,000 years ago on the Sundar landmass. Now, when the, uh, the ocean levels were lower, Sumatra, Java, Borneo and the Malayan Peninsula were all part of this one big landmass called Sundar. But the two orangutan populations had already split off before the ocean levels dropped and, and Sumatra and Borneo became islands. Now, my theory is that there was a third species of orangutan, one adapted for living on the forest floor rather than uh, an arboreal existence, and that's what the orang pendek is. I know we had um, uh, Darren Nation, and the orang pendek was one of the creatures he's really hopeful about, and I guess I am too. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, one he of the more likely sounding cryptids. He says it's the, the only the only man-like creature he thinks exists. I think it's the most likely. I also think I think the yeti exists, and it's certainly not a goddamn bear. But <laughs> you mentioned uh, the Indian yeti earlier, and you went there uh, and did an yeah. expedition uh, as well. Yeah. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you've heard this thing with Professor Brian Sight, so I know. Um, he's a really nice guy and a, a first-rate scientist. He, he got this hair uh, from an alleged yeti, and the DNA from it turned out to be from a hybrid bear. And one of one of the parents of this bear was from a lineage of polar bears that were thought to have died out forty thousand years ago. Now that's absolutely fascinating. It's brilliant, but it's not the yeti. It's like me saying to you, "I've got." hair from a giraffe so rhinos don't exist they're two completely different things well he didn't say that it didn't exist he he, he didn't say that personally he yeah, didn't yeah. say that but the inference of the program was but the thing was they already knew it was a bear of some kind when they got the hair now if you actually talk to the witnesses which they didn't there was one local person they talked to and he hadn't seen the yeti he'd had some livestock killed by an animal which he thought was a bear hmm. If you talk to witnesses, they describe something which is transparently a primate. And the people I spoke, spoke to, they were adamant what they hadn't seen was a bear. They, they described it as looking like a colossal man or an upright gorilla. It was black. The Yeti isn't white. This whole sorry, ridiculous thing that the Yeti is white comes from a mistranslation of the Sino-Tibetan Mito Kangme which means abominable man of the rocks. It was mistranslated as abominable man of the snows. And there are, there are two things that really, really grind my gears. It's when the Yeti is portrayed as white and when in films, dragons are only given two legs. Dragons have four legs and two wings. So, uh, so why do you hate Rudolph? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's an albino one. <laughs> Rudolph, incidentally, Rudolph, Rudolph, like all other, uh, all the other of, of Father Christmas's reindeer, uh, is female. They would all I've be heard female. this before, but I don't remember I why. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, well, uh, reindeer are the only deers where both sexes have antlers. Males use them for fighting, females use them for scraping away uh, the snow to get at lichen. Uh, by the time Christmas has rolled around, the rutting season's over and the males have dropped their antlers. Uh, but the females retain them for slightly longer. So if Father Christmas has got all these reindeers pulling his sleigh, they're all going to be female. I've lost my thread. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hollywood the has Yeti. this thing about, about portraying dragons uh, with only two legs. In folklore, dragons are supposed to have four legs and two wings. If they only have two legs and two wings, they're wyverns, which is something completely different. But they're so lazy in Hollywood. They did it with The Hobbit recently. And that's a book that I absolutely love. And I think Peter Jackson has shafted that book and completely ruined it. And once again, he portrayed Smaug as only having two legs, when every illustration Tolkien did was of an animal with four legs and two wings. But I, I digress. That's just something I had to get off my chest. Well, no, no, I mean, no, monster <laughs> nerds. I mean, that's that's the thing. You, 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 I kind of guess that the artists were trying to make it... Uh, anatomically more plausible with real world biology just because we don't really have any large uh, reptiles or mammals that have two arms two legs and an extra set of limbs for wings right so um I'm, that's just a guess but you're right it's uh your your real dra- your real dragons <laughs> have the four and the wings richard mentioned the hobbit and isn't there a reference in the hobbit to uh the mongolian deathworm some kind of wereworm? Oh, yes. This is some obscure... Th- when, when Tolkien was... Um... Oh, now some obscure Tolkien. That's going <laughs> <laughs> to... It was an early draft of The Hobbit where he talks about, about some killer worms from the deserts, from the deserts of the East. And it, it's thought to be a reference to the death worm, which was... It was mentioned by um, Roy Chapman Andrews, the paleontologist, it was one of the first Westerners to go over to Mongolia. They based um, Indiana Jones That's on That's right. And he, he was looking for the origins of man. Instead, he found lots and lots of dinosaur eggs, which I think is much more interesting. But he was told by the prime minister of, of um, Mongolia to look out for the death worm and see if he could capture one. He thought it was nonsense. He didn't think um, there was such a creature, but he mentioned it in his book. But you're fairly confident that if it exists, it's not a worm. And no, no, it's not an annelid worm. It's a reptile of some sort. But another one I think is 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 likely is a giant anaconda in South America. When I say giant, I mean 45, 50, 60 feet. I don't mean 100, 150, 200 feet. What's the upper limit for what we found? Uh, the biggest anaconda was about 27 feet. 27. Oh. The reticulated python was 33 feet, but nowhere near and seven. Then titanoboa was 45? Titanoboa was... Um, 43 to 50 feet. Yeah. But, but the thing about the anaconda is it doesn't lay eggs. The female retains the eggs inside her and she gives birth to live young. Vipivorous, they've severed their last link with the land so they can stay in the water getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I, I talked to there's a guy called Mark O'Shea. You may have seen him on television documentaries. He, he's a, a snake expert and he goes around the world catching snakes. He's not unlike Steve Irwin, but he's got a big ginger beard. Uh, now, I was talking to him about it once, and he says, yeah, he, he thinks that the, the giant anaconda is real. We're not talking about uh, a new species of, of monstrous snake. We're talking about freak individuals within a population that get very, very big. And if there's a, a, a big specimen, and it would be a female with, uh, with snakes, with crocodiles, it's, it's generally the males that are the, the big ones. With snakes, it's the females. So it would be a female. Male anacondas are only about a third of the souls of the females. Uh, it will be a big female in a remote, remote, undisturbed areas that are putting all their energy into growing. Got a good food supply and put all that energy into growing. Hmm. So kind of like a koi that grows as large as its environment. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, reptiles keep on growing throughout their lives. They just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. The growth rate slows down, but they, they carry on growing. So, uh, an anaconda 60 foot long is not impossible. And a snake that big would be quite capable of killing a full-grown bull or a stallion and swallowing it whole. <laughs> a frightening thought. And they call them, it's in some parts of South America, they call them Manatoro, the bull killer. When we were in, when we were in Guyana, we were, our guide was a guy called Damon Corrie. And he's a brilliant man. And he's the, 
hereditary chief of the Eagle Clan Arawak tribe. They're a, a tribe of Amerindians, and he's their chief, and he's very well respected. And he, he runs this thing uh, called First Nation Vacations, where he takes people off the beaten track. If you put Damon Corey into a, into a search engine, you get him. He takes people off the beaten track in, in South America. He told us about some hunters from his tribe that had been in a place called Corona Falls in Guyana, and they'd seen a anaconda so vast that they ran away from it. And he was, he was saying, how big was it? And they said, well, there was a, a fallen tree, and they pointed to a palm tree. And this palm tree was about 40 feet long. And, and they said, there's a tree like that, and it, it was fallen, o- it had fallen over, it was dead in, in the swamp. Mm-hmm. And the anaconda was crawling over it, and its head and its tail stretched beyond each side of the tree. There's an idea. Um, have you ever thought of to raise money for your expeditions to take people along, or would they be getting in the way? Um, well, that's another thing we're toying with at the minute. Uh, we've got to look look into um, legislation and stuff. And, insurance. Uh, <laughs> insurance <laughs> is, the, is the big, the big thing. One. It's mm-hmm. something we're, we're just starting to look into now. I mean, I did try, at one time I tried to uh, get companies interested. There was a Tasmanian Tiger beer and there's um, oh, Yeti, yeah. Yeti Cycles and um, Lacrosse that have the the sports where they have the, the crocodile. I wrote to them with a, seeing if they'd like to sponsor a trip to the Philippines looking for a 30 foot man eating crocodile in a Gusan marsh. And uh, most of the big, the big companies didn't give you the time of day. Uh, the smaller companies wrote back saying, this is great. We'd love to, but we, we just don't, don't have the money. Yeah. I, I think Kickstarter is going to be your way to go. Let me just say mm-hmm. this. I'm a skeptic and I love monsters, right? That's really mm-hmm. my whole thing. And I, I firmly believe in looking for them and not just sitting on the couch and deciding whether they're real or not. In general, I mean, I, if, if they defy, I'm not going to go looking for dragons or support the hunt for dragons if we're looking for animals with four limbs plus wings. I just can't, you know, evolution doesn't seem to suggest that's out there, but to look for plausible biological animals, I bet you can get plenty of support. Um, through a Kickstarter type thing. And, you know, if you went ahead and, and filmed, you know, I don't know what kind of a camera person you are, but maybe you could then get some residual income off of the DVD. Yeah. Well, we do, we do film our, most of our, uh, expeditions and we, we've got them up online. We've got a thing called CSZ TV and most of our expeditions are turned into full length films and they're, they're up, up for everybody to see. But we've, we've been toying with the idea of Kickstarter for some time. And I've, I always thought that television would be more interested than they are. Uh, then you've got to fit their narrative, though. That's yes, you're going to fit yeah. the narrative of whatever the producer and director want to give you. Every, uh-huh. every, every year we get approached by dozens of companies that want to do this, that, and the other. And generally, you never hear from them again. Worst case scenarios, you get your uh, research stolen. Mm. Uh, That's uh, happened to you, has it? Oh, yes, yeah. Mm. Uh, there's... There was a company uh, way back when, when I was a student in Leeds, which is in, the, in Yorkshire in the northeast of England. And I was trying to get an expedition to look for the Tasmanian wolf. And this company, uh, for a series called To the Ends of the Earth, it was on British television. And they said, we, we hear you, you're trying to get this expedition together. We want to do a documentary. Um, would you like to come and lead this expedition and we'll film it? And I said, oh, he's the Pope Catholic. So I, I came down to London from Yorkshire, which when you're a student costs a lot of money. I came down twice at my own expense and told them everything I knew about this animal in excruciating detail, what to do, what not to do, where to go, all my theories and ideas. And, and then they said, yes, we've just got to check with a few people in Australia and then we'll be back to you. Then I get this letter saying, oh, we've decided not to use you because the producer wanted to use a pretty girl instead. Uh, another company more recently, uh, it was actually when I was out looking for Yeti in India. There was a company that wanted me to go on a panel uh, of inverted commas experts to talk about Mystery 8 worldwide. It was for a, uh, it was called The Ultimate Guide to Bigfoot. And it was a, a two-hour documentary, but I was away when they filmed that particular segment. They wanted me to go, I think it was to Canada, to, to be on this panel. But they said, oh, instead, could you do some research for us? And they mm. wanted me to 
plot every sighting of the Yeti, the Orang Pendek, uh, the Almasti, the Yeren, uh, so they could do like a an animated map of, of where these sightings have been in the country and the dates and so forth. And it, oh, I did this, and it took me three days to do all this. And they said, "Oh, we'll we'll um, make sure you get credit for it, and we'll send you a copy of the of the film when it's done." They didn't send me a copy of the film. I had to track it down online because it was never shown on British television. I had to track it down online, and I didn't get a credit for it. Uh, and this has happened again and again and again. Now, yeah, we've had experiences. We've had experiences like that too with uh, just producers calling, and they're too lazy to do their own research and just spending hours with them, and then you never hear from them again. So, the last definitely one happens. For, was for a, a, a something. I think it's been. I can't remember if it was the Discovery Channel or um, National Geographic. I've got a feeling it was this Discovery. They were doing something about mysteries in Russia, and they they wanted information on the Almasti, the Russian uh, creature, which maybe my theory about this is that it's possibly uh, an early offshoot of the first wave of Homo erectus. But I was over there in 2008 in the Caucasus Mountains on the trail of this creature. And we met people, including the deputy head of uh, a national park who had seen one of these things. And the people over there are quite baffled when you come and ask them about it because they say, well, why have you come all this way to just to ask us about this? Because to them, it's another creature, like a, a wolf or a bear, no more fantastical. And there was one night we were staking out a, a, an old abandoned farmhouse and two of the guys that went with me was a U- Ukrainian guy called Gregory Panchenko, who's a biologist, who's seen one of these creatures close up in an old barn. And there's another guy uh, called uh, Anatoly Serendenko, uh, who's an archaeologist, who'd also seen one. And this old farmhouse we were at, uh, there'd been sightings of these, this alleged sightings of the Almasti around there. And... It consisted of three rooms and an L-shaped veranda running around the outside. And we'd set up some camera traps outside and then um, waited. And it, it got very cold and it was about 2.30 in the morning. And we went into one of these rooms to warm ourselves around a, a, a little stove. And there was a large door, a big wooden door, about seven feet tall. It was, it was about four or five inches ajar. And it was a very clear night, and there was moonlight and starlight streaming in. And I was there with a, a chap called Adam Davis, who's a friend of mine, another cryptozoologist. And we heard, we heard this big, deep, guttural vocalisation from outside. And it went something like, bum, 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 bum. but my lungs and my throat can't do it. It was had much more bass to it. And I said, did you hear that? And he said, yes. And about 25 seconds later, this is 2.30 in the morning, something walked along the veranda. Whatever that something was, it was on two legs. Because when it passed the door, it blocked out the starlight and the moonlight to a height of seven foot. And I said to Adam, there's something out there on the veranda. We grabbed our digital cameras, went running out, and we just found silence and darkness. Whatever it was, it had vanished into the night. And I can't say that that was an Almasty. It was something big on two legs that walked along the veranda. It wasn't a bear, because bears don't walk around on two legs as a threat posture when a bear stands up. And a bear would have made more more noise. So what, what it was, I don't know. But it was a very, very um, interesting night, to say the least. Now, I told them all this, and they got rid of Researchers got really excited. So, oh, yeah, we want you to come down to London. We'll pay your expenses. We'll give you a fee of two two hundred pounds. And you know, I was going to take a day out of my schedule to do all this. And then they got back to us and said, "Oh no, they've decided they want someone with an American accent." <laughs> it was. It was. No, it doesn't matter that you've been there and looked for it, and you may have got possibly have got close to one. They just wanted somebody with an American accent. Yeah. That's how fickle television is. Yeah, very superficial. Have you got a pretty face? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You've got a pretty face. It doesn't matter. You've done all this research on the father's side. No, we just want someone with a pretty face. Yeah. I've got a face for radio. That's what it is. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I have to say, the, fr- the French company, Scienti, were brilliant. They did everything they said they were going to do. It was just myself, uh, the cameraman, this French cameraman um, called Chris Killian and an exceptionally beautiful um, taxidermist from London called Adele Morse. And then we had the uh, 
native guides. So it was just a little group of us. We went out there and we had a fantastic expedition. We got loads of results. We heard the creature vocalising. We found masses, more tracks than we've ever found before. Interviewed more witnesses and it was brilliant. And now there's talk of, of doing a series with the same guy and you know expanding this out into maybe 20 episodes looking for different cryptids around the world so i'm waiting with bated breath on that it would be lovely to have a series about cryptozoology that is science-based yes and it's got people running around in the woods shouting screaming and saying there's a squatch in these woods when they hear something rustling. yeah well i I, I wish you success but i i'm afraid i think if you want to get that kind of level of integrity you're going to have to do it yourself but Mm -hmm. um that's just my suspicion i guess we've run out of our hour here we try to ask everybody who comes on monster talk this question which i probably should have prepared you for but what's your favorite monster my favourite monster from ancient legend is the dragon. It's the king of the monsters. Forget about demons, vampires, werewolves. You mean Godzilla. God- Godzilla's king of the monsters. Yeah, well, he's sort of a <laughs> isn't he? They're found in every culture on Earth going back 25,000 years. Could be that there's something like Megalania or one of its relatives that is still possibly around in maybe New, New Guinea or somewhere like that. Maybe not Megalania per se, but something related to it. But... Giant reptiles in general, there's evidence for huge crocodiles, huge snakes, things like that. They fascinate me. So uh, from from legend, it's the dragon. From uh, biology, it's got to be the thylacine, the, the mm-hmm. Tasmanian wolf, because it's such a, a, it's a great example of convergent evolution. Isn't it? Yeah. It's a great, I think it's a great symbol for survival and for hope. And it's, it's the, the emblem of the CFZ. It's our totem animal. And it's, it's more than any other. It's the one I think is still out there. And it will be such a triumph for conservation if you could find this creature. Yeah, there are lots of sightings in other parts of Australia too. Uh, yeah, an area where my mum lives yeah. in, in Queensland. So hopefully you can get back there and keep searching. And, and up in uh, New Guinea as well, where they call it Dobsenga. They say, uh, the, the hill tribes say there's this creature that looks like a dog. It has stripes, it comes down from the mountains and kills livestock. We don't hunt it because it's taboo and we call it Dobsenga. Showed a picture of the thylacine, Dobsenga. And we know it used to live there from fossils. And New Guinea is so poorly explored. Mm-hmm. Yep. On the same island, you've got stories of 30-foot crocodiles, giant man-eating lizards. Now, that's my sort of holiday destination. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. You just heard an interview with Richard Friedman of the Center for Fortean Zoology. Your hosts were Blake Smith and Dr. Karen Stolzno. Links to Richard's website and books are available in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of my guests and myself. And besides, you know what they say about opinions, right? Everybody's got them, and they're not necessarily the opinions of the Skeptic Society or Skeptic Magazine. What a weird saying. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Keep listening. We've got a fun episode on mummies coming up soon, which I just can't keep under wraps much longer. If you like Monster Talk, why not take a couple of minutes and give us a review on iTunes? It's free. I get to see what you think of the show, and it helps others decide whether or not to give us a try. And if you hate Monster Talk, why not give us a heartfelt review on your favorite Commodore 64 bulletin board system? I want to remind you about our Monster Talk cruise. Details are at cruise.monstertalk.org. And I'd really love to get a chance to meet listeners and hang out in the tropical breeze talking monsters and mysteries. I really hope you can make it. Also, I'll be appearing on this week's episode of The Virtual Skeptics live at 8 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, June 4th. That's a web video show hosted by several of my skeptical colleagues. And it's free to watch at virtualskeptics.org. I hope you can join us for that, too. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening.
you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Uh, we don't we don't really edit for content per se, but I do try to cut down on the uhs and the ums that I'm inevitably going to drop. And um, the example there, right? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.